The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding the Benefits and Refining the Role of Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors in the Treatment of Recurrent and Advanced Endometrial Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KWF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Bhavana Pothuri, a professor in the Departments of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Director of Gynecologic Oncology Clinical Trials in New York, New York. Welcome to this case-based educational activity titled Refining the Role of Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors in Endometrial Cancer. Traditionally, women with advanced endometrial cancer have limited effective treatment options. The good news is that significant progress has been made to guide personalized treatment regimens that may be more effective than conventional chemotherapy approaches used in the past. Let's start by looking at the current status of endometrial cancer. Um, there are an estimated um, almost 67,000 cases, um, new cases of endometrial cancer in 2021, and there are about 13,000 estimated deaths in 2021. Um, and the median age of diagnosis is 63. When looking at endometrial cancer, we see that the majority of cases are um, localized and confined to the uterus. Um, and overall, the relative uh, five-year survival is about 80%. However, you can see here in this graph that the rate of new cases is rising as well as an increase in the death rate. In terms of endometrial cancer, we know that the mortality is now similar to that of ovarian cancer, and the disproportionate burden is really among black women and is rising. Um, and although um, we've seen ovarian cancer mortality steadily declining, we see that the mortality for uterine cancer is actually increasing by 2% annually from 2008 to 2018. And this is largely due to the racial disparity uh, that we're seeing. And um, black women with endometrial cancer have a higher mortality rate than white women, and this may be due to molecular differences, um, the fact that they represent a higher proportion of um, the high-risk histologic subtypes, uterine serous and carcinosarcomas, um, and that's why it's really critical to widen the diversity um, in terms of clinical trial enrollment so that we can identify therapies in all patients. In terms of um, the current um, standard of care chemotherapy for recurrent metastatic or high-risk disease, GOG-209 established that paclitaxel and carboplatin is the standard of care. And on the right, you can see here um, the addition of trastuzumab resulted in both improvements in PFS and, as shown here, OS. The traditional histologic classification of endometrial cancer is now shifting to a more um, molecular approach to allow for a personalized treatment um, selection for each patient. So let's talk about the TCGA classification. So the TCGA identified four distinct subtypes of endometrial cancer based on molecular profile. So the POL-E or the ultra-mutated um, have the um, best prognosis, which you can see over on the right, 
um, in the blue line, the um, patients with MSI high or deficient mismatch repair in the green have an intermediate prognosis along with the copy number low, which is represented by mostly your endometrioid um, tumors. And then the patients with copy number high um, are the um, serous-like patients um, that are P53 aberrant, and those have the worst prognosis. So looking at these four subtypes, you can see here um, the poly and the MSI high group um, fall into a category of tumors that are um, considered hot tumors and more responsive to immunotherapy, whereas the copy number low and the copy number uh, high are considered cold tumors. The paradigm is really shifting um, in endometrial cancer management. We're now using immune checkpoint inhibitors for poly and deficient mismatch repair tumors. Um, we're using combinations um, with chemotherapy and VEGF inhibitors in copy number high or P53 aberrant tumors. And then we're um, using more hormonally based therapies for copy number low. About um, a quarter to a third of endometrial cancers are um, deficient in mismatch repair or MSI high. And um, it's important to keep this in mind um, as you're treating your patients. Um, so we know that the majority of our patients with advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer are actually mismatch repair proficient. And in that setting, there is an FDA-approved combination regimen with pembrolizumab and lenvatinib based on Keynote 775, which is a randomized phase three trial. Um, you can see here had an improvement in median progression-free and overall survival when compared with um, physician's choice chemotherapy. In addition, the ORR was also improved um, in mismatch repair proficient endometrial cancer. And these data led to the um, approval of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab in patients with endometrial cancer um, that is not MSI high or DMMR. Today, however, I'm going to discuss cases that explore patients who fall under the other third of women with advanced endometrial cancer whose tumors are DMMR. So with that in mind, let's talk about our first case. So Janice is a 67-year-old black female, retired elementary school teacher who enjoys more time with her grandchildren. She presents to her gynecologist with postmenopausal bleeding, and an endometrial biopsy shows a grade 3 endometrioid adenocarcinoma. A CT scan revealed enlarged lymph nodes and an enlarged uterus. The patient underwent a TLH, BSO, and complete resection of visible disease. In terms of her comorbidities, she represents a typical patient with endometrial cancer, obese, has type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, um, both of which are well controlled. Janice is currently overwhelmed with the procedure, the tests, and all these medication choices. Now we have another case, Caroline, who is a 48-year-old white female, part-time librarian, and avid traveler. She was diagnosed with FIGO grade one endometrial carcinoma and undergoes a minimally invasive hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo oophorectomy and sentinel node biopsy. 
Her final pathology revealed a grade two endometrioid adenocarcinoma, stage 3C1. Immunohistochemistry revealed loss of MLH1 and PMS2 and MLH1 promoter hypermethylation. She received six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel. She was noted to have a good response by CT, but then complained of new abdominal symptoms approximately four months later, which prompted an abdominal CT and biopsy. This confirmed metastatic disease. At this point, we recommend checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy approach. Caroline is concerned about the impact of a new regimen on her daily activities. You've chosen a scenario where Janice has been diagnosed with endometrial carcinoma and a complicating variable that she's unsure why she would even need biomarker testing. So let's take a step back, review some more details about biomarker assessment, its impact on treatment options, and how to discuss the importance of this with your patients. So mismatch repair proteins um, essentially detect and correct mistakes during DNA replication. The absence or loss of function of one of the mismatch repair proteins results in deficient mismatch repair. And DMMR or deficient mismatch repair is the cause of MSI high. MSI high is another test that can be utilized um, that really identifies um, the evidence of um, mismatch repair proteins that are not functioning normally. So MSI high provides the phenotypic evidence of deficient mismatch repair, um, and either of these tests can be utilized um, when looking at the um, role of immunotherapy in treating your patients. In terms of testing for mismatch repair deficiency, there are um, different options. Um, you can perform PCR for MSI high testing. You can perform immunohistochemistry for mismatch repair proteins. And you can also obtain um, MSI through NGS. Um, and currently, um, most institutions, including my own, do mismatch repair IHC. However, we also um, consider uh, MSI testing um, with NGS because we sometimes can get additional information like poly sequencing data. So routinely, every patient who undergoes surgery should have biomarker testing. And this allows for the ability to determine which patients should be referred for genetic counseling and testing to identify Lynch syndrome. In addition, these test results um, are important because they're available for future treatment decisions if the patient progresses on initial chemotherapy. And finally, these results may even become more important earlier in the treatment course as therapies move into the frontline setting. As is the standard of care, Janice was treated with six cycles of paclitaxel and carboplatin. Although she experienced a complete response, she returned 15 months later with complaints of pelvic and back pain. A CT scan and biopsy showed recurrence in the psoas and pelvis. Janice's histopathology showed loss of nuclear positivity for MLH1 and PMS2, indicating deficient mismatch repair. She also had MLH1 hypermethylation, suggesting that she likely did not have Lynch syndrome, and her PCR NGS results revealed MSI high. The results of her biomarker testing are important to guide further treatment options. 
So you've chosen a scenario where Janice has been diagnosed with endometrial carcinoma and a complicating variable is that she is unsure of the clinical benefit of pursuing further treatment of her endometrial cancer if chemotherapy has already failed. So let's review the benefits of immunotherapy after chemotherapy. So immune checkpoint inhibitors work by blocking T-cell inhibitory signals, essentially activating T-cells to eliminate tumor cells. And predictive biomarkers um, can guide clinical decisions regarding the use of immunotherapies. So there are currently two PD-1 inhibitors approved as monotherapy for use in advanced endometrial cancer. A tissue agnostic approval for pembrolizumab was noted in 2017 for the treatment of unresectable or metastatic MSI-high or DMMR solid tumors, and in 2020 for TMB-high tumors that have progressed following prior treatment and who have no other satisfactory alternative treatment options. Dostarlamab was approved in April of 2021 for the treatment of DMMR, advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer, and this was soon followed by a tissue agnostic approval of Dostarlamab in August of 2020, one for DMMR recurrent or advanced solid tumors. So Keynote 158 looked at pembrolizumab in patients with recurrent DMMR endometrial cancer. And here you can see that the objective response rate was 48%. And on the right, you can see um, the swimmer's plot showing that the duration of response was long. Garnett studied dostarlamab, which noted a durable anti-tumor activity in patients with DMMR and MMRP endometrial cancer. And you can see that the objective response rate was 43.4% in DMMR endometrial cancer and 13.4% in mismatch repair proficient endometrial cancer. And here we see the swimmer's plots, and you can again see that the duration of response um, was very significant. And you can see the differences in terms of um, the histologies in terms of the DMMR and the MMRP patients, where in the DMMR, you see a lot of grade one or two endometrioid carcinomas in the orange. And on the right, in the MMRP cohort, you can see um, many of the high-risk histologic types, such as um, clear cell and serous um, that are represented. So since um, we've talked about the benefit of um, utilizing immunotherapy in the treatment of recurrent endometrial cancer, it's really important to engage the patients in this um, decision-making. And shared decision-making has had a significant impact on the patient's psychological well-being, adherence, and actually even confidence in the provider. And I often use shared decision-making to really make sure the patients understand the benefits and risk, um, really asking them what their thoughts are, and really um, facilitating this um, conversation between the patient so that the patient feels empowered um, in the treatment that they're receiving. Because Janice had DMMR, endometrial carcinoma, pembrolizumab, or dostarlamab can be utilized. This patient's physician chose dostarlamab. You have chosen a scenario where Caroline has been diagnosed with metastatic endometrial carcinoma and a complicating variable that she would like a treatment that will still allow her to work part-time and be flexible with her travel schedule. Let's look at how immunotherapy can fit into Caroline's lifestyle and what adverse events should be explained to her. So when dosing and administering immunotherapy, it's important to um, 
understand that these are administered intravenously and there are no oral options. And dosing schedules can vary depending on the agent um, and longer intervals can be utilized and can benefit patients um, who travel long distances, the other thing that's really important about immunotherapy um, for patients to be aware of is that there are side effects that can affect any organ system. And patients should understand this before they start, that the side effects of immunotherapy can affect any part of their body, as you see on the left. And these side effects can occur at any time, including even months after the treatment has finished. Most of the side effects are treatable with steroids or other medications, but the key is early identification. And there are some rare but serious side effects that can lead to death, especially when they are not recognized early or remain untreated. So this is again to reiterate um, the uh, immune-related adverse events that we can see with checkpoint inhibitors. These are the more common ones, um, which include hypothyroidism, rash, um, GI, um, commonly diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and then um, pulmonary with pneumonitis. And for a more complete um, guide on uh, IRAEs, please download the practice aid. It's also important to kind of um, in your mind have an understanding of when um, these immune-related adverse events occur. Um, and so you can see here that rash um, and colitis are typically early events. And then intermediate events include the um, endocrinopathies such as hypothyroidism, as well as liver toxicity um, and uh, pneumonitis. And then nephritis is usually a late event. So it's really important to keep in mind um, that the professional um, communication to patients is key. It's important to educate the patient about um, uh, immunotherapies, how they work, um, what the IRAEs are. Um, I often ask that patients who start new therapies bring in a, um, a, a caregiver or a family member so they can help them through um, this um, treatment and journey. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that immunotherapy is very different than your standard chemotherapy um, and that um, you know these immune related side effects um, while the serious side effects only occur in 5% of the patients, um, it's important to understand the signs and symptoms um, so they can um, report them early and um, really kind of um, uh, telling the patient how important it is to reach out um, uh, as soon as they experience these is critical because as I said earlier, um, you know, early recognition and treatment um, usually can lead to very successful um, mitigation of symptoms and even continuation of treatment with um, immunotherapy. You have chosen a scenario where Caroline has been diagnosed with metastatic endometrial carcinoma, started on drostalumab, and she's had diarrhea for the past few days, but didn't want to bother her care team with complaints, so she didn't call in. So 
again, I can't stress enough how important it is to encourage early reporting. So, you know, at the onset, you know, before start treatment, really kind of um, understanding what um, immunotherapy side effects you have in your toolbox is important. Making sure that patients understand the symptoms, um, including diarrhea for colitis, um, which can often be bloody or mucousy. Um, really having them keep track of the number of bowel movements if the diarrhea um, does um, uh, present itself um, so that they can accurately report it and the care team can accurately grade it. Um, as I'm going to um, report later, the grading is really important in terms of treatment considerations, uh, making sure patients have adequate anti-nausea uh, medications, and most importantly, um, that they have permission to call and have um, the uh, appropriate um, phone numbers. So, um, you know, just to kind of uh, think about some of the important issues as you're counseling patients, you know, think about how the patient learns best. Is it verbal? Is it printed materials? Is it a combination? Um, determine whether English is their primary language. So, I mean, this is key. We had an experience where we had a um, Russian-speaking patient, unfortunately, where, um, you know, it wasn't... Um, well communicated to her and uh, she developed an IRAE and ended up in the hospital. Um, so really, you know, making sure you have um, an interpreter, making sure you check for understanding is key. Um, also, um, making sure they have the practical, you know, when to call, what number to call, what symptoms to watch out for, and then um, really using a team-based approach as you're utilizing immunotherapy, making sure your NPs, your nurses, the care coordinators also understand um, what the AEs are and when um, it's important to act um, in a timely fashion. So as I alluded to, um, the management of um, IRAEs is dependent on the grade. So typically with grade one um, uh, um, immune-related adverse events, there are minimal or no symptoms. Um, and in general, you can continue checkpoint inhibitors um, and really um, um, just help the patient um, um, with supportive measures, making sure that they stay hydrated. With grade two, um, these are mild to moderate symptoms where you wanna actually hold the checkpoint inhibitor um, for most grade two toxicities. And then you can resume it once it has um, reverted to grade one or lower. And um, you can also consider um, corticosteroids, 0.5 to one milligram per kilogram, um, depending on um, uh, how it's affecting the patient's um, uh, quality of life. Um, and then grade three or four um, are more severe or life-threatening. In general, with grade threes or fours, you need to hold the checkpoint inhibitor therapy and you need to um, uh, start um, immediately high-dose corticosteroids prednisone, um, one to two milligrams per kilogram per day. I mean, these are high doses, but this is what is needed. Um, 
when uh, you do have a grade three immune um, related adverse event. Um, and if those symptoms you know, don't respond within 48 to 72 hours of high dose steroids, um, you may need to use infliximab. So some of these toxicities you know, can be managed at home, but there has to be very frequent check-ins um, where um, you, know, you contact the patient you know, every one to two days to make sure there is improvement. And if there is they need to be hospitalized um, and have um, uh, uh, um, steroids administered or infliximab. And then it's also important to really um, utilize your other consultants as you're managing these um, IRAEs. Um, and then the other key piece is that, you know, once you start the steroids, um, they shouldn't be tapered quickly. They should be tapered over a course of at least four to six weeks. Um, and generally, you can resume, for many of the IRAEs, you can resume once the patient has recovered to um, a grade one or less, um, and they are on 10 milligrams uh, of prednisone or less. And in grade four toxicities, generally, you want to permanently discontinue the checkpoint inhibitor, except for some um, exception of endocrinopathies. Again, really close monitoring, making sure you evaluate their blood work, look at their liver enzymes, their creatinine, their thyroid function. Um, you know, I tend to check their thyroid every two cycles. Um, query the patients about symptoms. This I do at every visit, you know, cough, shortness of breath, um, bloody diarrhea. And then, um, you know, I think also not to scare the patients that, you know, these don't happen in um, the vast majority of patients. You know, the severe IRAs really only occur in 5% or less. Um, and the more common AEs are really the fatigue, nausea, and anemia, which can easily be mitigated and treated. So we've made a lot of advancements with immunotherapy in the second line setting with efforts that are moving it into the front line. There are several ongoing or um, those that have completed accrual um, with immunotherapy combinations in advanced endometrial cancer. These are all phase three trials, um, the RUBY trial, the ATTEND, the DUO-E, um, the LEAP-001, and the GYO-18. So um, we are eagerly awaiting data for some of these that have um, completed accrual. And finally, I want to um, just um, make a plug for clinical trials and the importance of our patients participating in clinical trials and providers advocating for their patients to enroll in clinical trials, as this is what leads to transformative advances in the care of um, GYN oncology patients. And increasing diversity is actually one of the most important things um, that we can do at this point, um, since we've shown you that the um, incidence and mortality of endometrial cancer is growing, and that is really um, uh, also um, partly related to the increase in high-risk histologic subtypes um, that disproportionately affect um, black women. Um, and as we develop new therapies, we want to make sure that they work in all patients. So in conclusion, women with endometrial cancer have limited treatment options representing a very high unmet need. Biomarker testing is imperative for patients since molecular classification allows us to um, better select therapies. Um, checkpoint inhibitors are effective for patients um, with endometrial cancer, 
Both dostrolumab and pembrolizumab are approved for second-line monotherapy in DMMR or MSI high tumors, and combination um, therapy with linvatinib and pembrolizumab is approved in the second line for patients with tumors that are mismatch repair proficient. Um, investigations evaluating immunotherapy earlier in the frontline setting are um, ongoing, um, and it's key for members of an oncology care team to work together to support patients through immunotherapy. Um, racial disparities um, persist and um, are really um, important in terms of um, um, really making progress in the um, treatment of endometrial cancer. And finally, um, shared decision-making um, is really important um, to empower patients um, uh, through their cancer journeys. That ends our discussion for today. We hope you found the activity informative and useful to your practice. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KWF 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.